Thank you so much. Please keep that passage, Isaiah 53, open before you. Have a Bible in front of you. The First World War, the so-called Great War, has been ingrained on the consciousness of successive generations these past 100 years. Those evocative black and white pictures, images of the unimaginable carnage and horror of rat-infested trenches has seen to that. When the armistice was called on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918, 16 million people, predominantly young men, had perished, slaughtered in the battlefields of northern France and Belgium. Another 20 million would carry in their bodies and in their minds the scars and horrors of that conflict for the rest of their lives. It was meant to be the war to end all wars. How crass a slogan that seems 100 years on. In fact, it only took 21 years for the Second World War to break out in 1939. Nation took up arms, this time against the tyranny of a Nazi oppression. The six years of the world, Second World War proved even more catastrophic in terms of the death toll. It's almost impossible to take this in, but by the end of the Second World War, two and a half percent of the world's population had died in the battlefields of Europe and Russia, North Africa and the Far East, in the vast oceans of the Pacific and Atlantic, in the unspeakable horrors of the Nazi concentration camp. In total, 60 million men, women and children, more than the current population of Britain. This is an unimaginable scale for us to comprehend. There was a new dynamic to this war. For the first time, civilian deaths ran into millions. There would be no escape from the bombs that rained down upon London in the Blitz or in Dresden in Germany. And finally, in the first and most horrific incident of an H-bomb on Hiroshima in Japan. So there was hardly a family in Britain or Europe or America or Japan left untouched by the carnage of the Second World War. On Remembrance Sunday, my thoughts immediately go to my father, Don Archer. He lost his wife, Violet, and his eight-year-old boy when a bomb seared through their roof of their house in Douglas Road, Tolworth, just over a mile from where we're sat this morning. Away on active service in the army, this dear man, understandably, never recovered fully from that tragic loss. It stayed with him for the remaining 45 years of his life. At the going down of the sun, and in the morning, we will remember them. Of course we will. And as Mike has referenced already, the tens of thousands who've lost their lives in subsequent conflicts 
that have blighted the world right up to the present time, even as we sit, sit here in the peace and comfort of this hall. There's war raging in Ukraine and in Gaza. We will remember them. Now, remembering is a particularly important part of the Christian message. It's what Christians are called to do every time on a Sunday when they gather around what's called the Lord's table to remember the death of the Lord Jesus. In a passage from the Bible that's often read at that time in 1 Corinthians, it says, do this in remembrance of me. Now, that call to remember isn't because we're blighted with a bad memory, though perhaps a number of us are struggling with senior moments more frequently than we would like to admit. It's not because we have a bad memory. No, when the Bible says remember, it's actually a call to action. It's a call to act upon what God has done in the past and what he will yet do in the future. It's a call to line up our lives day by day with what he is about in the world. Now, God's activity in the world stretches all the way back to creation, but it comes into particular focus in an event that we know as the Exodus in the Old Testament. This marked the time when God himself went to war to liberate his people, the Israelites, from their slavery and oppression there in Egypt. The call, let my people go, which Martin Luther King echoed uh, in the last century, was first spoken by the Lord himself through the prophet Moses in that call to the Pharaoh, to the king of Egypt, let my people go. To prize the people from Pharaoh's clutches, God had to send 20, sorry, 10 plagues, 10 terrible afflictions upon the people of that land. And the tenth and final one was called the Angel of Death, the Night of the Angel of Death, when the Angel of Death passed over the land of Egypt and the firstborn son of every family in that land was found to be dead in the morning unless they had sacrificed a lamb and put its blood on the lintel and the jams of the door. Successive generations of Israelites, of Jewish people, right down to the current day, remember that Passover every single year. They do it with the words, remember, remember the time the Lord our God brought us out of Egypt. But in the unfolding story of God's activity in this world that is revealed to us in the Bible, that Exodus story has a meaning far, far beyond one racial group or one event in history. This famous liberation story is a huge signpost to point us forward to another liberation, a greater liberation that God would bring about 1,500 years later. It's there in the Old Testament to point us to the greatest war and the greatest act of liberation that the world has ever seen. Which is why Remembrance Sunday resonates with the Bible so much. A terrible tyrant, you see, had taken hold, not just of one nation, but of all nations. Not just one group of people, 
but every people group. Its tyranny, its authoritarian power, just won't for a few years or a few decades or a couple of generations. They for all years, all generations. In fact, this tyrannical grip upon human beings has been around since the very beginning of time. And there's no power on earth found strong enough to defeat it. And though millions of pounds have been spent on education, religion, new philosophies, new political dogmas, peace, movements, ideologies, all were found to be powerless in the face of this tyrant, this deadly oppressor. And furthermore, there was no peace to be had with this despot, no negotiation possible, no United Nations. He wasn't interested in trading in his power of violence and tragedy and suffering over mankind. Indeed, beyond it all, he had a final solution, his own final solution, that is death itself. This enemy, you see, this tyrant, would prove beyond human power to overthrow. Indeed, it needed superhuman, divine power for this evil could only be conquered by God himself, by a greater power than evil. And Remembrance Sunday reminds us that there was a time and a place 2,000 years ago when God said, enough is enough. And at immense, unbelievable cost to himself, sent his own son off to war to win a war that we were powerless and are powerless to win. Its final battle was foretold for us in that reading that we've had in Isaiah 53. God's strategy against this evil was one of counterinsurgents. For his son came into the world under the radar born in an, in an unknown, really, Middle Eastern village called Bethlehem, born into a working-class family. He grew, and in teenage years, he worked as a carpenter in the family business until he was 30 years old. In espionage terms, he was a sleeper. Nobody could have guessed what he was about, there in his village or there in his land. But now the time was right for him to reveal himself. We have that recorded for us in the four stories of his life in the four Gospels of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Eyewitnesses to all that he did when he showed himself to be God himself. But even when he went public, he didn't take up arms. He didn't take up bombs or bullets. These were not the weapons that were going to conquer this particular enemy. Instead, he spent three years explaining why he'd come to the world, explaining exactly what God is like, revealing himself to be none other than the Son of God. He did all the things you'd expect God to do if he came to this world. He healed the sick. He cured those with terminal disease. He gave sight to the blind. 
He displayed his power over nature itself. He stilled a storm. And in the end, he even rose, raised people from the dead, his friend Lazarus amongst them. He did all the things you'd expect God to do if he came to this world, to show that he was no ordinary person. In fact, he was God come to earth. But none of that was going to defeat the tyrant that held us imprisoned in its grip. That's because this enemy had two seemingly unconquerable weapons by which he held every human being prisoner. They weren't nuclear bombs or lethal poisons. They were not gulags or holocausts. But these two powers are present in the life of every single human being, every single one of us in this room this morning. They are the twin enemies of what the Bible calls sin and death. Sin and death. Sin, you see, in Bible terms, is that deep-seated rebellion within our hearts, whereby we want to be number one. We want to be God of our own lives. We want to be free of his rule. It's that terrible bias that's in us from childhood upwards to refuse to acknowledge God as God and give him the honor and love and respect that he deserves as our maker. As a result, of our first parents, this tragedy, this imprisonment, has visited every single one of us. And we're utterly powerless in the face of it. Try, stop sinning. You can't. New Year will come upon us soon. Oh, I'll turn over a new leaf. I won't do that again. It will last but a day or two. We're powerless. I didn't mean to say that. I didn't want to do that. Why did I do that? It's because of the greater power, the power of sin. And try not do it dying. Our culture is obsessed with trying not to die, to giving the impression that life will go on and on and on, to have makeover over after makeover after makeover. It's a denial on a grand scale in the face of the inevitable. One in one of us die. Those are the twin enemies. Those are the greatest enemies of mankind. Sin and death. Sin ruins this world. It ruins our lives. It ruins the lives of one another. It's seen on the macro stage in wars. It's seen on, on, on the micro stage in the arguments in our lives. The family discord that can take place. The refusal to forgive. It's a powerful powerful enemy and it comes with that terrible bedfellow of death spiritual death physical death dead towards God dead towards life ultimately now it's in the face of that and it's only when we begin to understand the gravity the enormity the power of that that we begin to understand the amazing nature of the love and the sacrifice and the intervention of God 
seen at Calvary. As foretold in graphic detail in this reading in Isaiah 53, 600 years before it happened. Imagine that, foretelling it 600 years beforehand in such detail. We're told how God would send his son to conquer this power of sin once and for all. And never forget this, that at the heart of the Christian message is a God of suffering. We live in a world of suffering. Does God care? Is he distant? Is he remote? No, he is intimately involved. He's called here a man of sorrows. God is intimately acquainted with suffering. He knows all about it. He knows what it is to lose a son. For the victory that his son achieved was only achieved in the blood and the agony, the desolation, the God-forsakenness of Calvary. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to know the enormity of his love, you look to the cross. On that day of history that we know as Good Friday, Jesus faced down this tyrant that had held mankind in its iron-like grip all those years. On the cross, the final decisive battle took place. It was a fight to the death. Though at any time, the Lord Jesus, as he hung upon the cross, could have called down a legion, thousands of angels, to come to his rescue. That would be some rescue, wouldn't it? But he refused to do that because he knew if he did that, then the battle, the war with the devil would be lost forever. So he stays there in unimaginable torment of mind and body to win this war. As Isaiah puts it here, he was pierced for our transgressions. A spear up through his side. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds, we are healed. We can be made right with God. You see, in laying down his life upon the cross, Jesus did something absolutely unique in human history. Winston Churchill recognized that. Preparing his famous speech about the heroics of the RAF pilots in the Battle of Britain, he first drafted, never in the field of human history have so many owed so much to so few. His aide, who was a very courageous guy, it would have, I would think, said, Prime Minister, you can't say in history. That alone belongs to Jesus Christ. The great man said, you're right, young man. Let's amend it. And the famous speech took on the form, never in the field of human conflict has so many owed so much to so few but never in the field of human conflict have so many owed so much to just one. In history, Jesus Christ. Jesus laid down his life as a sacrifice for us. His victory is celebrated 
in a most remarkable way is with his final words. His final words on the cross are, it is finished. It's done. It's done. It's, it's not, it's finished. The game is up. I've lost. It's a victory cry. It's finished. I've done it. I've conquered sin. I've paid the price. The penalty that was due upon every human being, I've paid it by my death here at Calvary. I've made a way open for us to be made right with God. I've made it possible for people to be forgiven, for their sin to be justly dealt with, not excused, but dealt with by his death, his sacrifice, just like that Passover lamb all those years ago before in the Exodus. He is, as the Bible describes him, our Passover lamb. It is finished. His work is complete. He's come to die in our place, our substitute, our ransom, our Passover sacrifice. And on this Remembrance Sunday, which speaks so eloquently of the ultimate sacrifice of so many in a previous generation who've paid the ultimate price for our freedom, God calls us to remember and act upon the greatest sacrifice of all, that of his own dear son. If the blind weren't down, you could see it, but you'll see it on the way out. Part of the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. It's the most awesome, glorious, significant act in the whole of human history. It's to be the most significant, glorious act in our brief history here upon earth, because God calls us to himself through Jesus. God expects us to take the death of his son with utmost seriousness, with supreme importance in our lives. Do you think he expects us to take it seriously? Of course he does. He's given his own son. If any one of us had given up a child, we would expect people to take that with importance. God has given up his one and only son to rescue us from these twin tyrants of sin and death. And we know he's conquered them because three days after Calvary, placed in that tomb in Jerusalem, on the first Easter Sunday, he rose again from the dead. So when we gather around the Lord's table, the words that we remind ourselves are of this, remember the Lord's death until he comes. We're caught in the in-between. We're caught to look back, but we're called to look forward because he will come. He will come. He, he's set us free from the claims of sin and death. And this glorious news is that he didn't stay in the tomb. As the angel said to the women who came to the tomb, why do you seek the living amongst the dead? He is not here. He is risen. He's risen. 
He's conquered. He's won. It is finished. He's done it. Sin is paid for by his death. New life is opened up to us. The hope, not only of forgiveness, but of a new body, a new home. Heaven itself with God is made available to us. He brings, as the Bible puts it, life and immortality to light. And every eye, says the Bible, will see and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. That's our destiny as human beings. One day, every one of us will stand before God, whether right now we want to acknowledge him or not. It doesn't doesn't matter because he is God. He's always been around. He is the God of creation. He's the God who knit you together in your mother's womb, as the Bible puts it. He's the God who gives you life. He's the God who showers down good gifts upon you day after day. Gifts of the peace that we've enjoyed. Gifts of friendship. Gifts of employment. Gifts of love. Gifts of family. But he wants us to receive the greatest gift of all. The gift of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the Lord's death until he comes. He wants us to know the joy of sins forgiven. We're so good at putting on a mask, aren't we? Camouflaging the deep pain in our lives. But in our lives we know there are things that we're profoundly ashamed of. Profoundly regret. Wish we could turn the clock back. Those things said, done in the past that have damaged and ruined others. But that's not the worst of it. They're but a reflection of our attitude towards God. Which is horrendous that we should behave like that to one who's been so kind and generous and good. The God who's given us life. Here's the marvel. Here's the wonder. Here's the glory of the Christian message. No wonder it's called gospel. It means good news. And the good news is, God says, I know all about that. I know your powerlessness in the face of sin and death and the grave. I've come in Jesus to break the power of sin and death, to give you forgiveness, reception into my family, and the hope of everlasting life with me. So what better day than Remembrance Sunday to remember the day that God sent his son to war? Knowing that from the very moment he left heaven, his final destination was to be a cross outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago that we know as Calvary. What better day, dear friend, the Remembrance Sunday, to come to the Lord. We're not talking about religion when we talk about the gospel. We're talking about relationship. The relationship that you've been born for and made for and wired up for. The relationship with your maker, with God himself. As one writer put it in a previous century, there's a God-shaped blank in every heart. That's because God has planted eternity in our hearts, says the Bible. He's made us for himself, to know him, to enjoy him, to delight in him. And he's made that possible in this incredible act 
of sacrifice upon the cross. What better day to come to him, to thank him, to bow down before him, to receive his forgiveness, simply to turn to him and say, Lord, I've never realized this before. I want to thank you. This is amazing. Take a step towards God and you'll discover that he's taken numerous steps toward you already, even bringing you here today to hear the good news of the gospel. Please don't allow the gospel to pass you by. It may be that what I've been talking about this morning makes sense, but there's so many things, so many questions. That's fine, that's great. We've all been that route if we're a Christian. Can I encourage you, if that's the case, just to take, to find these at the back, a gospel of Luke's gospel, one of the stories, the four stories of Jesus' life. Read it, especially read it perhaps with a Christian friend, because you'll want to bounce your questions off of them. They'd love to do that. Or just talk to a friend you know is a Christian and ask him or her to explain this message to you in more detail. Best of all, talk to God himself. Lord, I'm not even sure if you're there. But if you're there, and if what I've heard today is true, then reveal yourself to me. Pray that prayer. But don't let Remembrance Sunday, this moment, pass you by, dear friend. For the Bible says we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we will stand there without excuse. But we needn't do it like that. We can stand there as a child, a friend, a son, a daughter of God through Jesus. Call upon him as your saviour. Now, forever. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the incredible story that the Bible unfolds to us of how you've sent and prepared to send your son to war those 2,000 years ago at the cross of Calvary. We thank you, Lord, that there he defeated those two enemies in face of which we are totally powerless. He defeated sin and its power once and for all. He defeated death so that he could say to us, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Lord, may that be the case for every single one of us gathered in this hall this day, we pray. Thank you again for your Son, the Lord Jesus. Thank you for your mercy and love to us in him. Help us to embrace it. Speak to us this day, Lord. In the Saviour's name we ask. Amen.